Beyond Barbarossa, episode 35, Ukraine Then and Now. Barbarossa. I'm Scott Burry in the Red Beard Studio on traditional Anishinaabe Algonquin territory, also called Ottawa. This is Season 2, Episode 35 of the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by two of the most impressive podcasters I've ever discovered. They're Romeo Kokriatsky and Anthony Bartaway, journalists and podcasters who do, together, the Ukraine Without Hype podcast. Yes, they're right there on the ground in Ukraine as drones and missiles attack all around them, night after night. I got in touch with them to ask about the history of the Second World War in the East and where it fits into current Ukrainian thought and culture, and also about parallels and differences between that conflict 80 years ago and the one that's happening right now. On the day of recording this episode, Sunday, 14 September 2023, Kiev had gone through yet another night of heavy attack by Russian drones and missiles. Maybe that contributed to some of the connectivity issues we experienced, but Romeo and Anthony gallantly and generously persevered through it all. So, without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome, Romeo and Anthony. Glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Great. So first, I think I'm going to ask you to describe your podcast and tell uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourselves. How did you come to develop this podcast? I guess I'll I'll take this one. Um, So uh, I used to work at Hromadsky, which is uh, a pretty well-known independent Ukrainian uh, news outlet. And at some point, uh, in, in their English language division, obviously, and at some point I needed to, uh, we wanted to like put out a podcast and get the brand out there. So I was with my colleague Maria Romanenko at the time, and uh, we came up with the idea, well, we, we, we need a podcast, and we were um, kind of struggling over a name. And one of my big pet peeves uh, when it comes to Ukrainian coverage, especially prior to the full-scale invasion, was that there was very few kind of quote-unquote objective or at least unemotional reporting about Ukraine. It was either doom saying of one sort of the other, um, oh, Ukraine is so corrupt it's going to collapse any day, or um, oh, the Russians are going to invade any day. I mean, they did eventually fake, but that was a, um, it it was a a bit, a a bit doomery to say that in like 2015. Mm. Um, And on top of that, I, I used to work for UATV, which was, um, or is, I, I think it still exists, a, a government-sponsored uh, English-language news channel about Ukraine. Oh. And we were obviously expected to present the news in a very congratulatory fashion, let's say. So I figured, you know, if I, wa- I, I was going to put out um, my own podcast, I wanted to provide news about Ukraine without... Uh, blowing it up without leaning into one extreme or the other, just how things are as I see them with hopefully as um, much objectivity I can muster. And and we got Ukraine without hype. Yeah, and I obviously came in after the branding had already taken place, but the the way I really saw the naming, to me, I kind of think back at the reporting around uh, Russiagate slash Ukraine gate, those scandals mm-hmm. in the US, where a lot of that was actually based on these kind of off cast, disgraced officials and political figures in Ukraine who had really been like out of out of the field for like years at that point, but saw the opportunity to come in and you know, like a, like in medieval times where some courtier, disgraced courtier would go to another country and kind of spin their tall tales to the new king to say, 
oh, if you listen to what I say, I'll I'll be your you know puppet count in this neighboring uh, county. Yeah, like these people just spinning just these radical tales that made no sense, and everyone over here like thinking to themselves, why would you ever listen to what this person has to say about anything ever? Like just complete nonsense. And so this whole image of Ukraine that had developed uh, between these two scandals in the U.S. was one very kind of bizarre and bombastic and had no um, relationship with reality. So that was my uh, goal to counter that kind of thing with here's Ukraine, a normal country with normal normal politics, with normal news and things right. happen. There normally. Yeah, normal, normal problems, normal concerns, normal victories, like not not anything, not a, a martyr, not a hero, not a devil, just a normal place where normal people live. Yeah, your, your description of, um, of bombastic and out of touch with reality uh sounds like the previous American administration but maybe as a non-American I shouldn't be saying things like that oh well it's in it's recorded now uh, but so I guess yeah that, that was my sort of next question was uh that there was a lot of either hype or misunderstanding or um misappreciation of Ukraine in in the US in Canada the West generally would you agree oh app Absolutely. Like, honestly, I, I can give you an example from my own life. Uh, sure. I grew up in the U.S. I was born in Ukraine, but I grew up in the U.S. And uh, I moved back in 2014 in large part because the the way the U.S. news media was reporting on the annexation of Crimea specifically um, was making it was making me very much worry that we we're going to have Russian tanks rolling down the streets of Kiev. Um, and, uh, and my grandmother lives here. I didn't want to leave her alone. And that kind of hype, <laughs> to use <laughs> for lack of a better word, was really uh, was really worrying to me. And when I got here, I I, I immediately understood that uh, the risk at that time of full scale invasion was basically nil. The 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 way the news media was reporting on the situation in Ukraine was, like Anthony said, very bombastic, mm -hmm. and pretty much divorced um, from anything happening on the ground. So right. there's there's definitely a, a real um, habit, I would say, that that Western news media has of over-exaggerating how things are. Right, right. Yeah, and I think that's another sort of commonality with uh with my podcast my also uh, my some of my books is that there is very little understanding of uh, the Eastern Front of uh, World War II in the West. Uh, what we get here is basically the message that America, with the help of Britain, won the war. Uh, when, when really it was the uh, the Soviet Union that did the bulk of the fighting in and dying in the East in the uh, European theater. At any rate, yeah. And so I'm going to try to draw that link again another way uh, between your podcast, which is about. Ukraine today and and mine about the Eastern Front uh, of 80 years ago. So one uh, thing that um, sitting here in Canada, uh, comfortable Canada, is that we do get presented, you know, all, we're supposed to look at all sides of a story. And the story we get from uh, the Russian side of this is that uh, you know, Ukraine is a Nazi state. Russia is therefore threatened in much the same way it was in 1941. It's surrounded by enemies who are getting closer. And this special military operation is a defensive move. That seems, from what I'm hearing, Andy Rake, is that that seems to get a lot of resonance. That seems to be accepted by a large uh, swathe of the population within Russia. Does it have any resonance either way in Ukraine? Are there people who think, yeah, this, um, you know, Russia is has something to say in this situation, or is has that really just out and out rejected? Is there any perception in Ukraine that, yeah, Russia does have some legitimate complaints? This might have been the case, I think, prior to 2014. This this 
possibly would have been even a relatively popular position, though after 2014, um, things, public opinion in Ukraine start, uh, regarding Russia started changing, I think, for obvious reasons. Nowadays, no, there is there is no sense. And a big part of that as well is the fact that unlike Russia, Ukrainians have not been subject to like a concerted government effort of uh, war mania, basically. Mm. Um, one of the few uh, Vladimir Putin's regime is not really built on a sound ideological basis. They can't claim communism. They can't really claim capitalism. It's it's the the ideological basis for his rule is just mafia stuff. Yeah. Um, like might makes right, and that that's obviously not in the twenty first century. Not really that that good of a unifying force. Mm. So in order to find some ideological basis to kind of unite the Russian populace uh, about Putin has is started in the early 2000s, really pushing this idea of we're the country that world won World War II. We like we're the country that defeated the, the fascists. We made the yeah. world safe, blah, blah, blah. And really, the populace there has been subject to, to this concerted propaganda effort for a decade, like plus at, the, at this point. Yeah. Um, and every single like they that that is their guiding ideology pretty much. They don't have they they can't say oh we're democratic oh we're developed. It's literally just imperial nostalgia and we won the Second World War. Yeah, we uh, and U Ukraine never had anything like this. We didn't have any concerted push to um, glorify it. Of course, like every other um, post-Soviet nation, there is a monument to soldiers in every podunk little village in every single part of the country and and people do have like people are proud of the fact that you know our grandfathers fought the nazis and we defended our land um and so on but this kind of obsession with the second world war that we we are our identity is so tied to this that mm -hmm. it is impossible to extricate that that kind of thing doesn't really exist and again, sure. that, that 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 wasn't an organic thing that developed in Russia. Right. It was specifically due to this decade plus of propaganda that the Putin regime has pushed. Right, right. Well, that uh, yeah leads into that this question, which kind of touches on uh, my own heart, I suppose. But uh, is the Second World War itself, the history there, is that still a uh, sort of a prominent theme in Ukraine, either in its uh, education? Uh, its histories, its um, you know, popular culture, movies, uh, books, and so on. I mean, it's definitely being more de-emphasized now than it was previously. But there is still there are still um, extant veterans movements that that are relatively influential. Political leaders will still go and lay wreaths and flowers at the monuments of soldiers and so on. Yeah. Um. All the the eternal flames that the Soviets installed in every city are still burning. Uh, mm -hmm. Like the the local government takes care of it. Uh. So so it's not. Again, it's not an obsession, but it's not going anywhere. I mean, again, it was absolutely ruinous to Ukraine in particular, mm -hmm. and that that kind of memory is not going to just disappear. Just because right. Russia has invaded us, um, right. but due to the the complex historical nuances in this whole conversation, it's not something that people are shoving in their faces or complaining too much. I mean, um, you you still have people that will complain when uh, a street is renamed from some old Soviet general to some Ukrainian folk hero. Right, um, you'll have a couple of uh, people stand up and say, "Hey, blah blah blah," but they're they're typically considered politically irrelevant. So it's. <laughs> It's it's not really a thing. People, right. of course, are not going to like deny that there was World War II or that we were somehow the bad guys or that their grandparents were somehow bad guys for fighting in the Red Army or something. Right. Um, but there is a much stronger emphasis on uh, pretending, I guess, that Ukraine was defending its own land uh -huh. and uh, kind of de-emphasizing the role of the Soviet Union, the fact that while well, most Ukrainians were in the Red Army. Uh, we we yeah. just kind of sweep sweep that part aside and right. just focus on the defending our land against Nazis. The history of the Second World War, as I try to uh, say, 
in my, in my podcast was a very complicated one, especially for the other countries, Ukraine, Poland, the Baltic states, and so on. And so you get uh, for almost a four-sided war in Ukraine. In the Second World War, that four-sided war, there was a conflict also between Ukrainians who were uh, looking for a national state independent of the USSR, who came into conflict with Polish resistance. And also then, of course, they were in conflict with the Germans. And now the situation is, of course, it's eight decades later. A lot of things have changed. But there was that conflict. Now Poland and Germany are among Ukraine's most prominent allies. So is there in Ukraine any tension over that history? So I'd say that if you really dig deep into things, you might find some people who have some uh, like lingering antipathies towards Poland or or mm-hmm. Germany, perhaps. But it's really all kind of academic or, you know, if you get someone drunk enough, they'll start talking about how the, the Poles oppressed our people for uh, X number of hundred years. But in the form of actual date like actual politics actual uh, how people think not really no um mm-hmm. poland is recognized as like ukraine's best friend in the world essentially uh not right. in not not in material terms as much as the united states for sure but in terms of uh moral support of all the refugees that are there right the, the bond between poland and ukraine is about as strong as you can get up up there with you know lithuania is the other part of that as well and it's uh, important so, not to understand uh, understate that a lot of migrant workers work in poland right. prior to the full-scale invasion prior to even 2014 um and especially after 2014 when working in russia was falling out of vogue a lot mm. a lot of migrant workers went to ukraine so it's very like ukrainians have simply been more exposed to polish society they've worked there they have friends that or family that that have worked there they've traveled there so those those ties have been built in a very real personal sense for most ukrainians yeah and i have to say yeah, you go to the the, the bus station in shemishil uh the city on the other side of the border and everyone there is ukrainian <laughs> Uh, you go to different parts of Poland. There'll you'll find you know Ukrainian restaurants, Ukrainian communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, just walking down the street of Vashwav on the far west side of Poland, and you know you'll see Ukrainian flags in the windows. And I'm talking about before the, the current invasion, because yeah. I haven't left the country since since the invasion. But I'd go to Poland then, and you, Ukrainian is you is very ubiquitous in Poland. Yeah. Ukrainian Ukrainians. When we are, we weren't locked down from the pandemic, um, my wife and I used to go to uh, try to go to Europe once a year as, on a vacation. And I think in almost every trip, Ireland, Portugal, Czech Republic, every other trip, we've met Ukrainians either working somewhere or uh, on vacation themselves. So uh, I like to say too that uh, I consider myself a an honorary Ukrainian for a couple of reasons. First of all, I was born in Winnipeg, and Secondly, I married a Ukrainian girl, so Ukrainian-Canadian. So I, I do know a, a few words, too. So I can I can order a meal. <laughs> That's the important thing, yeah. 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 And, and beer. There you go. The big question I, I like to sort of draw back to my podcast, if I could, is uh, looking at parallels between the, the experience in the Second World War and the current conflict with maybe uh, different countries you know, playing the different roles. Of course, in this conflict, it's Russia that's the invader. But some of the same problems or issues still seem to exist. So we talk about supply lines and uh, those being interdicted. Do you see any parallels in terms of the strategies that don't work but don't get changed, the problems with supply, or anything else that you think are an echo? So I'll give you the more serious answer and the one that is kind of funny if you think right. about it afterwards. Um, so the the more serious side of things is, on one hand, this is a peer conflict between two heavily industrialized, two advanced organized militaries, which is something that 
especially the West has not seen much of in a very long time. Mm -hmm. uh, really since Korea, I'd say, was the last time a war of this variety has taken place. Um, so in this case where uh, there are large infantry movements, there's artillery. I don't know if many Western soldiers, Western service personnel have, have been on the receiving end of an artillery strike in their parents' generation, even. Mm -hmm. It's not something that American had to deal with much in, in you know, the Vietnam War. Like, yeah, back, you have to go back to Korea for that kind of thing. So having to kind of go back to kind of revert to the norm of uh, mass pure conflict has been a real uh, learning experience for Western militaries. A lot of the advice that Ukraine has gotten from Western militaries has been from the perspective of militaries that have been fighting, you know, counterinsurgencies for the last uh, several decades. So it's kind of shocked the system in that way. So, yeah, so there is uh, at artillery, there's defense in depth, there's, you know, tank warfare, which is, again, not the last time we saw tank warfare on any kind of peer level, what, maybe like the Israelis versus the Egyptians, I can't think of too many other examples of it uh, in right. recent times. That's so that recent, so yeah, and that's even that is well, you know, long before ago. I've been around. Yeah. Uh, so this, this, but even you have to look at how that has changed uh, with so the same kind of general overview of how the war works. Yeah, you know, this trench warfare, deep fortifications, that kind of thing, but. What they didn't have in World War II was drones, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, you can buy a drone at Best Buy that is the same as what is now being used in the field, oftentimes better. A lot of the, a lot of the drones being used by the Ukrainian military and the Russian military as well are very cheap drones bought off of, uh, China, off of Alibaba and Chinese websites. All they have to do is fly and maybe carry a grenade or a camera, yeah. which doesn't require much. No. So, so look for how that's changed artillery. For example, I've been with artillery units in the field, and you, what they do is they take their artillery piece to a certain location, uh, fire off for maybe a couple of minutes, and then get out of there because you're going right. to be seen by the drones and you're going to be hit within, you know, five, ten minutes. Mm -hmm. So it's called scoot and shoot. You have to shoot and run quickly. Yeah. Whereas uh, in the Second World War, it was massed artillery. That's how you punctured the, uh, the enemy defensive lines. The Soviet Union had the um, Katyusha rockets and the firers or systems, and they would rank 10 or 12 of these uh, launching trucks in a, in a nice long row, neatly uh, staggered and uh, in a set position and fire away. But you can't do that now. Um, no, that would get lit up. That would get lit up right now. Yeah, because you can respond very quickly. Same thing with tanks. You can't have the, you know, the, the mass tank blitzkrieg type things that the americans wanted us to do that and we just didn't have uh the the material for it it was just that simple people talking about you know the counteroffensive going slowly there's not enough yeah. tanks to do that kind of thing with the the kind of fortifications they're going up against yeah. just again go back to drones you take a drone if someone has the tank hatch open uh mm. <laughs> take have a grenade in a plastic cup carried by a drone drop that in we've seen it happen yeah you take out a, a multi-million dollar tank with three hundred dollars worth of equipment same thing with these large numbers of um shoulder-mounted missiles, especially that the Russians learned this very quickly early on in, in the invasion, where they had these long, stretched-out columns of tanks and armored vehicles, and the Ukrainians just kind of went to the side and blew them up yeah. with, with quite a lot of ease. Yeah. So now you can take out these very expensive mast systems with much more uh, inexpensive, much more individual kind of weaponry that you couldn't do as much of in the second world war and also what's your take on this then I, the big story of the second world war of course it was a highly mobile war you know these tank forces moved very far very quickly and we don't see that today uh you know yeah there's the complaint 
which I think is totally unrealistic and unjustified that the Ukrainian counteroffensive is going too slowly. But it does seem that it's not a mobile war. Well, it isn't until it is again. <laughs> right. So we saw, for example, in the Kharkiv counteroffensive, that front line was fixed in place for quite a long time. But yeah. then once that There's breakthrough happened, the Russians collapsed within the span of a week or, right. or two weeks. And they were all driven out of that territory very quickly. Uh, we That will be hard to do in the South right now because um, the Russians did not have the kind of defenses they have in now in the south as they did in kharkiv um basically there's a lot of uh fancy stuff going on with deployments and sleight of hand stuff going on where ukraine was able to get russia to drain as many forces away from kharkiv as possible with you know the Kherson. it was a very complex operation there but once those lines were broken in kharkiv it was donezo very quickly Romeo, you mentioned also about uh, the difference between the Red Army of you know the 1940s or even of the uh, 1980s and the Soviet or sorry the Russian Army today. If you could yeah, just... it's a very common I don't know misconception or willful misconception that especially pro-Russia or even quote unquote neutral commentators will make. It's like oh. The Russians have the the experience or the institutional memory of the Red Army. There's this um, professor that I follow on Twitter that I think is pretty insightful um, a lot of the time, Kamil Kaleev. And he is very uh, insistent that, no, the Russian army has very little institutionally in common mm -hmm. uh, with the Soviet army, especially after the, quote unquote, reforms that the Russian military undertook in the 2010s late late 2000s where they were kind of trying to pivot to a modern western style counter insurgents force coin force didn't really work <laughs> because russia is incredibly corrupt but uh, that that was what they were going for and a lot of the the kind of the old generals the old military guys that had that institutional memory um they're just not in the military anymore they are retired or dead or they were not from russia they were ukrainian or belarusian or they moved to israel uh, lots and lots of reasons but there really is no continuity between the red army and the modern russian army which is why you get a lot of these kind of pop cultural misconceptions that the Russians seem to have bought into the, the blocking companies and mass human wave attacks, because the, there's just not a lot of people that remember how things actually were. Right. And they really did try to, to pivot to being a quote unquote modern Western army, which while it didn't work out, it, it further degraded that institutional memory, which would have provided that connection. Mm. Um, they're completely two separate armies. There's really almost no connection beyond using the same technology and, and the same material there's there's really no connection right and a lot of the material today the tanks uh, and other vehicles are still that soviet era you know the uh, t70 series and so on they were designed 50 years ago yeah, exactly. Yeah. And while on, on, Russia on both tried sides to, of the conflict, it's yeah, on both sides of the conflict. Soviet. Though yeah, on both in Russia's case, they really did try to to modernize. Mm -hmm. But um, what we saw is they modernized pretty much just the elite units. Everything new was for export. Uh, and the elite units got a couple of things, and their doctrine was kind of stuck between whatever they remembered of Soviet technique and trying to to pivot to a modern force. And it didn't. It doesn't seem to have paid off. Whatever, whatever they attempted to do there. Well, and this is and something that's... else that I saw as a parallel is that there's a strategy, and it was on both sides in the Second World War. Here's our strategy. We're going to do this. Oh, it didn't work. Well, we're going to do it again, and we're going to keep doing it. And I kind of see that same thing happening on the Russian side now. Is that you know we're going to use the the mass human waves. And we're going to use the blocking uh, troops or the blocking units, but it doesn't pay off. But I don't see any change. In fact, I don't see the Russians have done much of anything in the last several months on in Ukraine. 
I mean, yeah, I, I was... don't I think that is also a bit overplayed and overstated. Um, because when I speak to soldiers in the front, they they do say that the Russians have adapted. They are yeah. um making mass use of drones, uh, just like the Ukrainians for recon, um, for uh grenade deliveries. They've started using um EMP and jamming weapons to counter drones. So the, the, they've even gotten very good at nailing down artillery positions using uh, drone triangulation. So they they really do they they have adapted not evenly, not quickly. But I think it is a mistake to say that they're just trying the same thing. They're just not very good at what they're doing. <laughs> but they are they are trying. One thing that like that we learned is at first there weren't really the the human wave attacks there was you know the the, the key of blitzkrieg of course uh failed miserably but that's just because they did not expect there to really be resistance but if you look at the only russian victory in the last you know year of the war it's bakhmut and how was bakhmut won it was through these you know kind of suicide charges where they would send out uh small teams and then of these uh, convict soldiers, watch them get blown up, and then wherever they got blown up from, blow that up. Uh, right. So mass use of these human waves, which was actually kind of, you know, the funny thing that I mentioned earlier, where in World War II, the Soviet army was not how it's seen in pop culture of, you know, just rush everyone forward and see what happens. It's not enemy at the gates. It was much mm -hmm. more complex than that. But now we have seen some cases in the Russian side where they kind of had done that. And because they thought that was working in Bakhmut, they tried to do it elsewhere in Vulhadar uh, was right. the main one of the the there's the winter offensive of you know february march of this year mm -hmm. uh where they tried to push on a lot of places and vuldar was one of them they tried these human wave attacks and just got torn apart for their for their trouble mm -hmm. and because they thought that that's what the russian army does partially because of this uh pop culture idea and right. partially because of a misreading of um bakhmut so the hype or the mythology that has been developed has uh, been almost realized in the current conflict. Well, the other one would be like the blocking as we were, we were talking about, mm -hmm. where, again, the pop culture idea, moving into the, the gates, have that machine gun behind them, prevent them from retreating, never happened, um, at least as far as I'm aware of. But if you look at, again, Bakhmut, when Wagner forces were withdrawing from their positions um, that they were with, stationed with regular Russian army. They had just taken Bakhmut and were getting out. But on the way that they were doing that, they didn't tell their their regular army comrades that they were leaving. Mm -hmm. And when the Ukrainian forces pushed up against where these Wagner lines used to be, they found them very lightly defended because there are much less soldiers there. And when the Russian soldiers tried to retreat, they were met with blocking units that right. uh, prevented them from retreating. And well, they had to use the Chechens to do something. Yeah. Kadyrov isn't going to put them, put, put his countrymen on the front lines, but shooting fellow Russians, so the Chechens love that. Yeah, there are other instances <laughs> of, of, of especially Russian conscripts from ethnic minority regions like Biratia how they were prevented from retreating in some places. In the Kharkiv Offensive, uh, some people tried to retreat across the Russian border because the Ukrainian advance was so quick and right. they weren't allowed to do that. Uh, so like this pop culture idea of what a blocking unit was that didn't actually exist in World War II, they were more glorified military policemen mm -hmm. most of the time, was actually implemented on a small scale at least by the Russian army uh, today. Thank you, Romeo and Anthony. Before we go to my next question, let's take a short break. Remember, you can support this podcast in multiple ways. Make a monthly or a one-time donation through Patreon. That's patreon.com slash beyondbarbarossa. Through reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you follow this podcast on. And by telling your friends who are into history of the Eastern Front of World War II or history in general. Let them know beyondbarbarossa.ca 
Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, you can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel, and all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War. Thanks for coming back to episode 35 of Beyond Barbarossa. I'm joined virtually in the Redbeard studio by Anthony Bartoway and Romeo Kokryatsky from the Ukraine Without Hype podcast. Now I'm going to move into Ukraine and one of the features of the war in Ukraine in the Second World War that struck me was all those social and political divisions, East, West, Catholic, Orthodox, Jewish, uh, left and right, as well as those uh, inter-ethnic conflicts in the western part of Ukraine between uh, Ukrainians who were uh, fighting for a, an independent national state and the Poles who were also fighting for an independent national state. But um, there was, let's just say, some disagreement over where that border should be. So those ethnic and religious and regional differences have they changed? Have they gone away? And is um, is Ukraine a more uh, ethnically diverse or less? And at the same time, is it more or less cohesive today? So cohesion and diversity, that's two separate questions, I think. Yes. Uh, so with diversity, ultimately, the great tragedy of the 20th century is that Ukraine is no longer as diverse as it once was. And the reasons for that, between the Holocaust, between Stalin's deportations, between Polish operation of the NKVD, it turned Ukraine from a much more religiously, ethnically diverse place to a more homogenous one. Uh, so, I mean, compare Kiev in 1920 when it when it was a like 25% Jewish city to today when it's a 2%, 1% Jewish city. Mm. It's a very big difference. There's still, of course, the outlines of where that history was. Uh, you know, a lot of you know famous buildings were built by Jewish residents, for example, but it's not the same. And ultimately, that is a world that no longer exists and never will exist again. Cohesion, though. <laughs> the cohesion issue is a very different topic. I am a Jew. I have reported on the Jewish community throughout this country, north, south, east, and west. I've done a lot of projects, uh, spoken to a lot of community leaders and rabbis, my friends, and the difference now and even in the 90s of the acceptance of the Jewish community is like night and day. Mm -hmm. There are very public uh, Jewish gatherings. And for example, uh, I was once walking down the street with one of my friends and we saw an advertisement for a Hanukkah concert. Uh, obviously, we can't have these these things now due to the war mass meetings right. are rare and far and few between so we haven't had that kind of thing but before the the current invasion we we saw this advertisement and they were flabbergasted because when they grew up this is a, a couple of years like 2015 this story happened right because as they were growing up you know in the early 90s and still having that lingering Soviet idea of you have to hide who you are from the world. There's an intense anti-Semitism, discrimination. And 
from that to seeing, you know, an advertisement for a Hanukkah concert on this giant billboard, it was a massive difference between how things were and how things are. Mm. I've walked around in my kippah before, and I did not feel any hostility whatsoever. Of course, the president of Ukraine is a Jew, right. <laughs> not only a Jew, but a very prototypical example of a Jew of his generation of, you know, he's he's literally a comedian who owned a right. media empire. Uh, he he fits a lot of stereotypes and he was still beloved for him. Right. Uh, and is now, you know, a hero of the country. Right. So if he were American, he'd be in Hollywood. Yeah. If if yeah. he was Hollywood and then became the war hero of the country yeah uh that's if dave kind letterman of a reagan trajectory now that you yeah. think about it kind of like kind of a reagan-esque trajectory but more he wasn't yep. really a comedian if you think of like you know uh like a, a if, if if seinfeld yeah. became eisenhower yeah that's <laughs> that's kind of the feel to it so he, he has to start by actually being an entertaining actor of some sort yeah i'm not a big fan of reagan's movies and not only that, like when the election for Zelensky was taking place, mm-hmm. a lot of the people in the Jewish community were a bit afraid because, oh, a Jew is running for the president. There's going to be a lot of anti-Semitic attacks on him. Uh-huh. Never happened. Never mm-hmm. became an issue. Not even once. Right. I did not hear. I did not hear anything personally degrading Zelensky for being Jewish, even from uh, his political opponents. You'd have to go to like the weird corners of the internet to find that kind of thing. Well, okay, but this brings up that trope that anti-Semitism is a powerful thing in Ukraine today. Anthony, what's your response to that? I mean, anti-Semitism exists everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say I never experienced any anti-Semitism whatsoever. But let's put it this way. In America, every synagogue now has very heavy security Hmm. because there have been a wave of mass shootings at synagogues by people with these extreme far-right beliefs of, uh, you know, white replacement and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Uh, The uh, the Tree of Life um, synagogue in, in Pittsburgh that was the largest anti-Semitic attack in American history. If a Jew goes to synagogue, they have to keep in mind that something may happen. That has never happened in independent Ukraine. There has never been a tree of life attack in independent Ukraine. I feel safer in Ukraine as a Jew than I would in the United States. There are rarely something like some graffiti or something on a synagogue uh, there there's one instant like two years ago three years ago where someone left a dead animal on the synagogue steps in some town far out west but the fact that i had to think of that one specific example from that long ago and it was just vandalism anti-semitic violence does not occur uh, in Ukraine, on any level that even registers to people who monitor these kinds of things, it's uh, not a part of the political discourse. It's not a part um, of political discourse. It's not a part of the social discourse. Mm. It's people it, don't really even make jokes about it on TV. Yeah, it's not a. Th- it's not a thing. I've, for example, you'll hear Ukrainians in Odessa, Odessa, which was formerly a very Jewish city and no longer is again because of the Holocaust and all that. But the idea of Jewishness is so ingrained into being an Odessaite that if you are an Odessaite, you're a little bit Jewish. (laughs) Uh, It just kind of goes along with the package. Like you'll, you'll be walking down the street there and someone will be paying Havnagila on the accordion. Yeah. It's just it's just part of the the ambiance there. And really, even a even if you look at you know Kiev, the city authorities have been very working very closely with uh, the Jewish community here. And it's really opened up to the rest of the country because people are interested in their roots. Hmm. And maybe there might be, you know, some downsides to that historical memory is always a very touchy topic no matter where you are in the world i mean talk about go to an american and and talk about confederate statues or 
uh, George Washington wasn't exactly very nice to the natives, and he's our pristine national leader. Yeah. Every country has these problems. I've had you know, very heated arguments about these uh, these issues in Ukraine, but ultimately they're just that. They're, they're theoretical. They're in the air. They're not uh, lived experience in any way. And the other side of this awakening to identity is looking back at how things were. So there has been more interest in Ukraine's Jewish history as well, especially since the Maidan. So mm -hmm. you hear about the Maidan, like, you know, the, the neo-Nazis overthrow the government. Yeah, that was the Maidan was the catalyst for a lot of the revival of the Jewish community in Ukraine in that everything in Ukraine became much more focused towards civil society, towards, you know, building things up as a country, towards energizing people's identity of who they are and not just an appendage of an empire, but who you are. And part of that was Jews kind of reigniting their identity here and being met very welcomingly by broader society who was interested in that themselves. And I want to note from a like state policy point of view that uh, after the Maidan, the government made a big accent, a lot of emphasis on the repression of Crimean Tatars right. in Crimea. And as a result, the Ukrainian government was sort of forced to promote diversity because they didn't push forward this into issue internationally as, oh, this is just some ethnic minority. Yeah, they're getting oppressed, but, you know, Crimea is Ukrainian or whatever. They fully accepted Crimean Tatars being dark-skinned Muslims as fully Ukrainian, as authentically Ukrainian as any Orthodox Ukrainian with Enko at the end of their name. That was... A Ukrainian, that, is, a Ukrainian is a Ukrainian. Yeah, exactly. There was really, after Maidan, a, a very strong push from the state level to define Ukrainian as a civil idea, not a nationalist one. Mm -hmm that you are Ukrainian if you live here, if you believe in the values of democracy and free speech, blah, blah, blah. It, it, that is what defines you as Ukrainian, not having some specific ethnicity or or what have you. And that has really also helped acceptance because it's right. just not socially acceptable to say something bad about Muslims, for example, because, well, Crimean Tatars are Muslims. They're being oppressed by Russians directly. Their communities have been utterly devastated. They're being dispossessed and deported. So what are you going to say? Those, they're not true Ukrainians? Of course not. They're just as Ukrainian as, as anyone else. One of the things that happened after the war was the unification, Western and Eastern parts of the country. So uh, Halicina, Volhynia, uh, Polisia which had been part of Poland and various other times, other countries, into Ukraine. Is there any persistent division, rivalry, distinction between far Western and Eastern part of Ukraine today? Not, well, I'll say that there are, of course, regional divisions, just like there are in any country. Um, yep. Oh, ask someone that. from from the north what they think of the southerners someone from texas what they think of california etc cetera, etc cetera. there's always always always, always regional differences of albertans yeah <laughs> what the quebecois think of anyone else <laughs> so there's always regional differences and i will say they were probably more they have been continuously eroded by russian actions Hmm. Um, after 2014, obviously, the initial invasion was kind of a unifying event. Like, okay, you speak Russian, I speak Ukrainian, but we're all Ukrainians. We're all being attacked by Russia. Russia wants to kill all of us. They don't really care what language we speak. They they want to make us all Russian and mm -hmm. destroy your Ukrainian identity. And the the kind of stereotypes that people had of each other, the regional stereotypes that people had of each other, started to erode. But after February 24th, uh, they really started to erode because at that point, it was no longer possible to be ambivalent about Russia. If after 2014, 
you still had a, a pro-Russian electorate in some parts, or at least people who were ambivalent or had strong historical ties, uh, especially on the border regions. Yeah, um, none of that mattered after after February twenty fourth. It was quite obvious that you this this was not a question one could be neutral on. Mm. Um, you hated the Katsap, and it didn't matter what language you spoke. And even the the kind of traditionally Russian-speaking regions of Ukraine, in Odessa, for example, people make, which was always a, a very Russian-speaking city, people make an active effort to speak Ukrainian. In Kharkiv, people make an active effort to speak Ukrainian. These were all very um, staunchly Russian-speaking cities. Right. So Russians' own actions have pushed Ukrainians out of that uh, out of these regional differences and into this kind of unifying Ukrainian identity. We're at least in part defined by the fact that the Russians want to kill us all. Uh, and there is no one under any delusions that there is some like peace or some agreement or if we just give Russia what they want, they'll just leave us alone. No one wants to live in Russia. No one wants to be Russian. Um, and even if you speak Russian, it's not it, – it, it, it in no way signifies that you want anything to do with Russia. Right, right. This, yeah. yeah, and – I've been pretty much everywhere in Ukraine at this point, and ultimately regional differences are almost more of geography than anything else. Like if you're in the south, there's going to be seafood. If you're in, you know, the Carpathians, you're going to, there's going to be more people wearing wool. Like it's not, you know, these drastic cultural differences of East and West, never the twain shall meet. It's right. just, you know, the, the logical conclusion of the kind of lifestyle that you're living in that particular climate zone more than anything else. And um, I'd also like to note mm -hmm. that a lot of the regional differences have always, like, the biggest regional differences have always been in Ukraine, not uh, West or North or East or whatever. It has been urban versus rural. Absolutely. If you are right. a rural Ukrainian, you live kind of one way, which regardless of what part of Ukraine you're from, if you go to a village in any other part of the country, you will instantly recognize everything that's going on. Um, right. And everyone's traditions will be basically the same. You'll have pretty much the same exact lifestyle. Nothing will really change. The The bigger change, the bigger cultural difference has always been whether you live in a city or whether you live in the country. Right. Like even with Dunbas, there was still that urban rural divide of if you lived in Donetsk City, Luhansk City, you're probably speaking Russian most of the time. But there was still large parts of the countryside that would speak Ukrainian. Oh. So even then, like it even on that level, it is more urban rural than geographic. And like most of my friends even have come are, you know, quote unquote, Russian speakers from the Southeast, and they're not any less Ukrainian than anyone else. And beyond that, I'd say are often more passionate about these kinds of things than the so-called nationalist people out West, because those are the people who have been most directly affected by the war. These are the people who have in 2014 had to become refugees the first time around now the larger part of the country and you know Zaporizhia oblast uh, Kherson oblast the people who have had their lives most directly affected are the ones who are often the most angry for obvious mm. reasons yeah. so not only would these people uh, reject the idea that they're anything but Ukrainian even though they grew up speaking Russian as their first language in a part of the country that uh, I'm hearing foreigners say is naturally Russia or whatever, they would outright take offense to the idea that they would be anything other than Ukrainian. That's sparked so many different ideas and, and questions, but those would be for different podcasts. So to bring it back to mine, if I could, my latest episode uh, is about the uh, resistance to German and Soviet occupation in Ukraine and Poland. So if there is any, what is the current perception within Ukrainian society today of the Ukrainian insurgent army in, during the war, UPA? What's the current feeling about that? They're an aesthetic. 
that's what they, they're they're an aesthetic more than anything else of the people who have some connection to that in a positive way and many people do um many people don't but many people do those who do there's no real connection to whatever ideology they may have had there's no real connection to whatever actions they may have had it's just the general vibe that they fought for ukrainian independence and that's kind of the start and end of that sentence very few of them i should say are terribly familiar with you know the writings of dmitry donsov very few of them have any inkling that ukraine should follow the ideology of those people it's just they fought the soviets they fought the nazis for independent ukraine and everything else is uh kind of academic uh one friend actually refers to uh, bandera as a uh, nationalist santa claus because <laughs> he is someone okay, I, who i had i would never have put those two he's ideas not, together he's not someone who actually exists after the war after uh his assassination there before his assassination really there was an idea of stepan bandera that existed within the soviet union that had very little to do with the actual man himself he was you know the great villain who was you yeah. know killing all the russians and all that in actuality the man spent the entire war in prison yeah he himself did basically nothing his philosophy was odious but he did not have the ability to do anything himself basically mm -hmm. so there was this mythology built around him as i should pause that for a second and say that keep in mind and this is a very big idea so i'll slow me down at any point the soviet union did not see the crimes of the holocaust as the actual crime of nazi germany the thing nazi germany did that was bad was invade the soviet union mm -hmm. there yeah, you can were, actually see that reflected in modern russian propaganda you see uh, it in like even the Holocaust Memorial uh, at Babi Yar, uh, it did not say here Jews were killed. It said um, the Soviet citizens of Kiev were killed. Right. The entire that now, yeah, it's changed now. But how it but, was, but yeah, the, the Soviet yeah. Union didn't didn't really like Soviet the problem wasn't citizens. that they were exterminating all the Jews. It was that they were extermin exterminating Soviets. Right. Yes. So what Bandera did was he fought against the Soviet Union and mm. everything else was irrelevant. And that's how it was taught in the Soviet Union. Okay. Well, fast forward to, you know, the 80s, 90s. Now, that kind of Soviet idea of Bandera, where his thing was he fought the Soviet Union, stayed around, except now it was a good thing so okay yeah so so what he did was fight the soviet union in 1970s that was a bad thing and today that's a good thing right and that's just what it is oun upa is an abstraction it is a, a philosoph it is basically a construct that was created by soviet uh propaganda like i i don't mean this literally there's of course an actual oun upa that did like pretty terrible things uh, in in addition to fighting for ukrainian independence mm -hmm. but because the because the soviet union demonized uh, yeah. it so much it became like a rallying cry for ukrainian independence right yeah not it became the things they did not because people ukrainians support or even really care about the things they did but specifically because it was so demonized by the mm -hmm. soviet union that it must be good the thing that is either being celebrated or demonized either way is not the actual Onupa. It's the Soviet construct of what the Onupa was. Right. You're either for or against that Soviet construct. And that's really what's going on. And that's not something that I think either people strongly for or against them would like to admit to. They would like to they would like to think they're talking about like this actual historical debate. When, frankly, it's not. It's about this construct. I'm going to go to my last question. 
What is the biggest misconception about Ukraine that the West has today? What do we need to understand? I, I don't know. Maybe this is this is my own my own bias, but I I, I get the sense sometimes talking to uh, Westerners about Ukraine that um, Ukraine is seen as this kind of corrupt African or South American oligarch state. That everything in this country is just hugely, hugely corrupt and doesn't work. And our politicians are all venal uh, little bastards who just steal money. And the thing is that that is also a common, a commonly held opinion within Ukraine. But I don't, that is not an accurate picture of what Ukraine is. The fact that there is still um, mass corruption, like, that, that that's that's a fact. The the Supreme Justice of the Supreme Court is currently in jail for mass corruption, uh, for grand corruption. But the fact is, he has he was charged and and tried mm. for this. Like it, he doesn't have impunity anymore. That impunity right. is gone. Like we have more or less independent anti-corruption bodies that function despite all of the corruption going around and the reason we know all the corruption that is going around is because we have journalists that are actively uncovering these schemes we have anti-corruption bodies that are investigating and then importantly prosecuting and convicting people on these schemes so while yes ukraine is corrupt it is trying not to be we are doing mm. our best to actually um hold accountability for all these account act, for all these corrupt actions and this accountability did not exist prior to the maidan it just even for years after the maidan especially for judges especially for people in law enforcement it just didn't exist and now it does and the the head judge of the country's supreme court is going to jail because he was convicted of taking millions and millions of dollars in bribes. Right. Um, this is like this is massive pro progress, and I think it would be it'd be great if if more Westerners and Ukrainians both saw that and, and acknowledged that this is this is a thing that we are doing. We are changing. The misconception that I would like to point out is the idea that Ukrainians can basically only do what foreigners tell them to do mm. and this comes out in so so many ways i would be here forever if i wanted to enumerate all of them maidan wasn't about you know the police just wailing on protesters and murdering a hundred of them it was because you know of a super secret cia plot that apparently paid off thousands upon thousands of people throughout the country um to do their bidding for them absurd about how Ukrainians only want to resist their country being invaded because America forces them to, about how everything that happens here is because of some Western plot or because of some cabal of people that make people do things against their will when Ukrainians have really been some of the most active people I've ever seen in my life. They care deeply about their country, about their people. They will not take guff from anybody and they will fight for what they believe in and for their families and for their survival. And the idea uh, that anyone would see that any other way is so outside of the realm of reality that it is absurd. Well put. We have two minutes left. So can you guys give me one minute on your podcast and what why my listeners who are history buffs should listen to ukraine without hype well for one thing uh and this is romy kratsky the co-founder of the ukraine without hype podcast speaking is that you get to listen to history in the making there is I think no doubts in anyone's mind that the Russian, the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine is a world historical moment. It is going to shape the geopolitical landscape in ways we cannot even imagine. And one of the best ways to keep up to date with all of the myriad changes and twists and turns of this incredibly important historical moment is by listening to Ukraine Without Hype, hosted by me, Romeo Kratsky, and my colleague, Anthony Bardaway. And I'd also add that as a history wonk myself, I often throw in often uh, kind of 
not very well known uh, periods of history just completely off the top of my head because I try to think of things on the spot. We had one episode where I kind of described the the current rise in Russian nationalism going back to uh, weird ideological experiments in after the Napoleonic War and how yes. it developed from there. So I, I, I touch things. on those things as well. So if you're listening, you'll get some of that. Gentlemen, it's been a real pleasure. So thanks Love very Ukraine. much. Thank you very much for having us. Okay. Slava Ukraina. Heroin Slava. Those erudite gentlemen were Romeo Kokriatsky and Anthony Bartoway of Kiev, Ukraine. Together, they produced the Ukraine Without Hype podcast, reporting regularly on Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine. Once again, I want to thank them for their generosity in sharing their thoughts and analysis with me and with you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning your podcaster to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. If you'd like to learn more about the Ukraine Without Hype podcast or any of our guests on the show, see the show notes in your podcasting app or visit this podcast's website, beyondbarbarossa.ca. I put all the links in there. You can also find more links so you can make comments, ask questions, or share your thoughts about this podcast, about the Second World War on the Eastern Front, the current war in Ukraine, or history podcasting. If you did like this episode, I'd really appreciate a rating or a review on your preferred podcasting app. I want to thank all who have supported the podcast through Patreon and other sources, and everyone who has listened to me today. Next episode, in two weeks, returns to the chronological narrative, continuing with the story of the Siege of Stalingrad, the bloodiest battle in history. I hope to talk to you then. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next time, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.